listening to the Farming Yard Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Farmyard and Farmyard's Mighty Network. Episode 65. And in this episode, I am reviewing some TED Talks that I heard excerpts from on NPR. And it's all about the food we eat. Some of the information is shocking, folks. So put your seatbelts on and let's go for a ride. Well, hello, everyone. Linda Borgie here from Farmyard. And you, my friends, are just one seed away from growing healthy people. So what do you think about that? I am an avid NPR listener. And a couple weeks back, I heard a podcast and it was excerpts from a few different TED Talks. And the title of the podcast for NPR was The Food We Eat. And after I listened to the three different excerpts, I'm a big TED talk watcher as well, I um, I came up with the, the feeling that, you know, how does the food that we eat become a tool of connection? That's really what I took away from this particular NPR podcast. So what I would like to do is just give you a little bit of a review of what I learned. Some of it was new and some of it wasn't. The first item on the agenda, which was not new, is a town in the north of England called Todmonton. And it's in a rainy, cold, dank area of England, as most of England is, but this is in the north. And what they're doing in that particular town and what they have done for the past 10 years is they have food growing everywhere. And this is the brainchild of a woman. Um, I'm not quite sure how old she is, but I believe she's in either her late 50s or 60s. Her name is Pam Warhurst, and her brainchild is called Incredible Edible. Now, if you go to Todmonton, right, you're going to walk across this canal, and on either side you'll know you're there because there's just food growing. You could go to the police station and they'll have potatoes. And you could go to the firehouse for the tomatoes. They plant food at the train station. So you get off your train and you um, on a Friday and, and you want some tomatoes. You go over and you harvest a few. And you know, something interesting that she discovered is that people don't take everything. Not one person goes and harvests it all all of it for themselves. They always leave some. So really, what this town is generating is a consciousness of others in the food that we eat. Isn't that really just a a great situation? And right now, they have 30 towns. This movement has 30 towns throughout England implementing the same model and they have communities in Japan, the United States, and New Zealand. They've actually created a new form of tourism. Get a load of this. They call it vegetable tourism. 
And what Pam says is uh, she gets people going to that town all year round, whether there is food growing or not. So maybe this is a big boost. This could be a big boost for local, the local economies. Let's just picture this for a minute, everyone. Okay, you live in a tiny town, you know, I don't know. Let's say Lynnhurst, New Jersey, because that's where I was born and raised. And let's say right now in Lynnhurst, New Jersey, there is food growing everywhere on public spaces, in the park, on people's front yards. Now, Lynnhurst is a commuter community for New York City. So the plots aren't very big. But remember, folks, on 450 square feet, you could produce a phenomenal amount of food. So let's go back to our scenario. So we're in Lynnhurst, New Jersey. So instead of grass, right, we are experiencing green beans, peppers, strawberries. What do you think that feels like? Can you feel that energy shift? And why does that energy shift? Because it makes us feel safe. Because we need food for our survival. And knowing that it's organic, clean food, doesn't that give you just such a peace of mind, especially for all the moms out there and grandmoms out there and dads and grandfathers and aunts and uncles? Of course it does. We're not like little zombie robots, for God's sake. So anyway, so there you go. There's my take on the incredible edible. And I will post all of these TED Talks, specific TED Talks, in the show notes. So you can go back and watch their full talks instead of just listening to me review it. So let's see. The next, uh, the next TED Talk that I listened to was um, a food writer and a cookbook author. And the name of his book is How to Cook Everything. And his name is Mark Bittman. And apparently he's a pretty famous guy. And this is what he taught me. That a minimum of 40% of the food in the stupid markets would not qualify as food by the dictionary definition. Well, food is meant to nourish. But who knew? 40% of the food? That's a little frightening. So what he, what he said that was 100 years ago, everyone was a locavore. Everyone had to cook. There was no snack foods. And in the 1930s, Clarice Birdseye came up with frozen food. There was no margarine. There were no restaurant chains, no ethnic food, unless you were ethnic. You ate food. Nothing contained more than one ingredient because it was an ingredient. No cornflakes, no cheese Whiz, Pringles. None were invented yet. Everyone ate local. 
in New York, an orange was a common Christmas present because it came all the way from Florida. And actually, I remember um, sending honey bells as Christmas presents myself back in the day. From the 1930s on, the trucks took the place of railroads and food began to travel. The South and West became agricultural hubs and in other parts of the country, suburbs took the land that farms were on. Eventually, California produced way too much food to ship fresh, so it became critical to market canned and frozen food. Thus arrived convenience. It cut down on the varieties of food we ate. Many of us grew up never eating a fresh vegetable. And I grew up never eating anything frozen. Thanks to farm subsidies and fine collaboration between the agribusiness and Congress, corn, soy, and cattle became king, and chicken soon joined them on the throne. Gluten-free bottle of water? The past 50 years, corn, soy, and wheat became staples of the Western diet. These monocrops were easy to ship, trade, and sell, and easy to process. And direct and indirect subsidies encouraged the growth of these monocrops. Hundreds of acres all planted in rows and harvested mechanically. Early in the 20th century, Iowa was the country's largest producer of tomatoes huge producer of apples, and now it's nothing but soy and corn. Now you have to figure out what to do with all of it. Principal uses for those two crops are animal feed, ethanol, oil for frying, and highly processed foods. In the beginning of the heyday with value-added foods, which contained as much corn and soy products as possible, the quality of home cooking was down the tubes. By the 70s, people started to realize the value of local ingredients. We expect to have any food in minutes. We need to think and eat personally. We just can't get everything all the time. We need to make food, real food, more important, not less important. Boy, isn't that something? Geez, I learned a lot, especially the 40% of the food in the stupid market that would not be considered food from a dictionary. So this particular TED Talk really moved me to start a campaign called Eat Real Food. So now what I do frequently when I'm making my supper, I didn't do it last night, I take a photograph of it on the stove and say, and I post it to social media, and I say, eat real food. These are potatoes mashed with skin and has some butter, salt, and pepper. 
Now, needless to say, everything is organic. Because if it isn't, then we're consuming poison. So we need to think about food without poison, right? Okay, let's move on to the next, and I believe this is the last TED Talk, but I'm not sure. Alrighty, so this uh, gentleman, Charles Spence, he's a pediatric researcher for the University of California in San Francisco, and he studies sugar. And this is what his TED Talk taught me. 74% of all the food in the store has been spiked with added sugar. And it's all hidden in plain sight. There are 56 names for sugar. We have replaced a real food diet with a processed food diet because it's cheaper and affordable and convenient. And kids like it, and it's addictive. Does sugar cause diabetes? Some say it's because of the calories, but sugar has empty calories. Sugar is toxic calories. And here's a way to look at it. There is a prevalence of diabetes worldwide right now. Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and Malaysia. Why? No alcohol. That's right, no alcohol. It's replaced by soda. Studies from Europe have concluded that if you consume one can of soda per day, your risk for diabetes goes up 29%, irrespective of the calories, irrespective of your weight, irrespective of anything else you eat. For every 150 calories consumed in soda, your chances of type 2 diabetes goes up 11-fold. And we are consuming two and a half cans per day. 29.5% of diabetes is due to sugar and sugar alone. This study actually satisfies both the scientific and legal criteria, probable cause, because you have to be able to show that something causes something before you could do something about it. By the way, personally, myself, that doesn't make any sense to me. And now it's been proven and shown how toxic sugar is. It causes diabetes and heart disease, fatty liver disease, which, by the way, is the biggest epidemic on the planet, and tooth decay. When we consume more than we can process, the liver turns the excess into fat. We now know that it's that liver fat that drives all chronic metabolic diseases that have been discussed except for tooth decay. What is the daily limit? The World Health Organization sets it at 6 teaspoons per day, 25 grams. But they were lobbied so strongly that they raised it to 12 teaspoons. In the West, we are now consuming 19.5 teaspoons. 
Some are consuming 30, 40, and 50 added teaspoons of sugar per day. Type 2 diabetes became a huge problem in the 1920s and heart disease in the 1930s. And then high fructose corn syrup happened in the 1980s. Because it was so much cheaper and it was at the same time that the quote-unquote low-fat directive came out of the USDA and the FDA. In 1977, the first dietary goals for Americans said less fat. The food industry knew that with less fat, the food tastes like cardboard, so they pumped it in with the sugar. And because it was cheaper, they can do it. So there you go. That is what I learned from those three TED Talks that were on NPR. And like I said, I'll post that um, that link in the show notes later on today. But gosh, you know, when you think about the way we used to eat. Now, I, I'm, I was born in 55, and there were a lot of us the oldest of eight, so nothing came out of a box. And that's where myself and my sisters learned how to cook and eat real food. And before our very eyes, those skills, it's like they're becoming extinct. When you think about the most asked question of Alexa is how do you boil an egg? Now, there's two words, boil and egg. Now, why why have we let this go so far? Are we so distracted? Or are we in denial? Well, those are two, two D words. And my suggestion is that we eat real food. Eggplant should not be letters on a box. It should have a purple skin. You know, and we need to to know where that purple skin came from, because really, our food is truly our connection to each other. I have seen it. I have seen it. Let's not forget that we put Lyndhurst in our minds, Lyndhurst, New Jersey, and now everywhere that there's grass growing is growing vegetables. Yeah. We could all farm a yard. Even if we can't do it, someone would want to do it for us. I guarantee you that because once you do it, there's no looking back. Well, thanks again, everyone, for listening. I hope you got an awful lot out of this podcast. And if you did, please download and subscribe and leave us a comment. And I want to let everyone know that um, this podcast is being supported by Farmyard's Mighty Network. And you could go to seed.farmyard.com. This is our membership site, and you'll find a ton of content in there. And if you want to stay up to date and up to the minute, this is this is definitely the place to go. All right, kiddos, I will catch you on the flip side. And until then, grow healthy people.